Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is the debut episode, the inaugural episode of Afterlife, a podcast about life, death, and life. I'm your host, Marie Soto, and on and today, on our very first episode, we have NOJ, one of the most brilliant voices in comedy, one of the greatest president presidents in comedy. <laughs> Uh, I said president, yes. You should be the president of comedy, is what I'm saying. Um, welcome, NOJ. Thank you, and hopefully I'll do a much better job than some presidents that we are definitely not talking about, but some. Definitely not. <laughs> so, oh my God, the bar is really low. It is so low. It's so low now, I might even want to get into politics just because I'm like, hey, anything could be better than that which shall remain nameless and unspoken so as not to sully the quality of this wonderful show. The quality of the show is, um, is greatly improved by the guests. <laughs> uh, first episode, everybody, just keep that in mind. First episode. Yeah. Um, so thrilling. I liked when you said that, like the inaugural, <laughs> it just sounds so important. I'm like, wow, I, I'm, I'm not feeling quite worthy, but yet so thrilled to be considered for such an auspicious occasion as the first show of this long-awaited podcast. People are waiting for this. They don't even know that they're waiting for it, but when they hear it, they're <laughs> going to say, yeah, I was waiting for this. Yeah, it's not the thing that they knew was missing from their life. Yeah, but when you when you get it, you it. totally know you're like, yeah, that's what I was looking for. Okay, well, we'll see how this one goes, and then we'll decide <laughs> on that later, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah. So, like I said, this is this is a podcast. It's a comedy podcast um, about life, but also death. Um, and, like, um, yeah, looking at, I guess, what that means to people, um, what people believe in or what, what practices and traditions they carry. Um, and, like, you know how you live life with all of that going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, when me and Nicole, Nicole and OJ talked, um, we talked about, yeah, about like our families and, um, you know, what kinds of traditions that we have um, between our families. So I wanted to know more about you and you had some, I think you had some traditions and cultural practices that you felt like were important to you and important for you to carry on. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I should say this is a really great time to talk about death. And I think a lot of people would say yeah. that because, you know, it's like we're in the pandemic and people are dying. But the truth is that people are always dying. We may not be paying attention to the sheer volume of people that are dying every day, but I think um, it's something that deserves a lot more attention than we than we give it. And yeah. my family is the is a in a in a culture where I feel like death has always been a part of our lives. You know, like I went to funerals as a child. I was deeply involved in funerals as a child. And coming from an immigrant uh, from an immigrant family, it definitely took on a larger role here in Canada. I think because we didn't see each other every day the way that we did back home. Uh, my family's from Saint Vincent in the Caribbean. And in the Caribbean, we could see each other every day. But here in Canada, funerals and weddings became the main way that we would see each other. 
And there used to be a lot of weddings um, and there were a lot of funerals. Now there are a lot more funerals than there are weddings, but it's just the nature of the way that the culture is changing. Um, so I would say that funerals have always been such a big part of my life. I was surprised to find that in some other cultures that they don't like to expose their children to death. They don't like to talk about death. Um, I've seen situations where grandparents pass on and children are told that, you know, the grandparents have gone on a long trip or they've moved away or they'll be back someday. So they're not given a truthful picture of, of death as part of a part of a healthy life. And I think that that makes it really, really, really difficult to to deal with, you know, so it's it's been interesting being around other people, other cultures and death as a result of immigrating to Canada and seeing what the the things are that they do, the things are that they believe and whether or not they think it's important. I think it's really important, an, an important conversation to have. Yeah, I think. Um... <clears throat> what was I going to say? I think, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying where there is like, there's all, I, and, and I think when we talked, there's, it's kind of like going on in the background of like how people talk about death or deal with it. And it's not um, something that is like, that is like very palpable to you as like what you were saying, like, now that we're in the pandemic there's a lot going on and like and we're seeing the numbers we're seeing the numbers of people dying we're seeing it in the news um and there is it's like hanging in the air that kind of reality mm -hmm. um and then yeah i do see what you're saying um with with families and like how how like i guess non-white um i'm filipino and my yeah um, I'm Filipino, uh, first generation Canadian, and like with immigrant families and like how death is something that's just like a given. I feel like it it is very much a reality. Um, and like, I don't know, like my when I would talk to like my mom and my titas, like they're it's just like they they it's it's just like a thing that's just they're very 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 comfortable with that yeah, reality <laughs> where they're like yeah where they're like why do I need a lifetime warranty I'm gonna die anyway or like <laughs> or like there was a thing of like you know like what are you gonna do what are you gonna do when I die what are you gonna do when I'm gone and I'd be like I just I just wanted to finish up my Pokemon game <laughs> and it's like it was almost like a it feels some sort of like a, a survival tool to have that kind of, I don't know, I don't even know what to call it. Like um, the constant, like, uh, I guess the constant references to death kind of always around you. Like it's it, to me, I, I think when what you're describing, like your parents are like, what are you going to do when I die? Um, it was just always in the conversation. Like my, my mother would yeah. say, you know, um, oh, you're going to, you're going to be sorry. You're going to talk to me like that. You know, one of these days I'm not going to be here anymore and you're going to be sorry. Like it's, it's not meant to be some kind of emotional warfare, but more of a declaring a reality. Like her death was present in, if I didn't wipe the counter or wash the dishes in the right way, it was like, how are you, if this is how you're going to sweep the kitchen floor. How are you going to survive when I'm gone, if I'm if if you can't even look after yourself better than this, like her death was present in the laundry, it was present in my cooking, 
it was present <laughs> in my schoolwork. Like, these are the grades you're going to bring home. You know, like, what are you going to do when I'm dead and gone? You know, so there was never any mystery in the fact that dead and gone was always a possibility at some point. Like, you didn't know when it was going to happen and you didn't know how it was going to happen, but you knew for sure that it was going to happen because. I mean, if you didn't hear a reference to her death at least once a week, like, I don't know, maybe she was on vacation. That might have been the only <laughs> that might have been the only way you were not going to hear that somebody was uh, was going to be dead and gone. Uh, you know what? I remember this one situation with with my mother when she's, um, you know, you, you know, and you're you're in this country and you kind of get in tuned to what other cultures are doing, you know, and I think we all start to have that Brady Bunch kind of view of the world where you realize that, um, you know, European people or white people are doing things differently. They seem so calm and gentle and their lives seem so free of drama. You know, like I, I, if you're on TV, you know, if someone dies, they might take you by the hand and sit down and say, you know what, I have some really bad news you know, just prepare yourself, hold my hand, you know, and, and let me deliver this bad news to you. And I thought, you know, we never seem to do stuff like that. Like my my favorite teacher, um, one of my favorite, no, the librarian, my favorite librarian in, in St. Vincent died. And my mother just said to me, you know, you hear Miss So-and-so dead? And I was like, what? She said, yes, yeah. she nephew, she nephew him gone mad and he come back from the States and he, and he kill her and he chop off. She had, you know, and I was like, oh my what? God, I was like, you can't just say that. Like I'm walking in the house with my groceries and you're going to just tell me that my, this librarian that I loved worship that she was killed by a, by a nephew that came back from the States. And you just blurted out like that. Like, where was this sitting me down? and holding my hand and preparing me for this terrible news. There was none of that as far as she was concerned. Death was a, a thing, it, it could have been cancer, it could have been anything, but to her, it was completely inconsequential how it happened because death was always present. She wasn't trying to be cruel, she just matter of fact, you know, just matter of fact about, about death. Like what's, what's not even what are you crying for? Like I understand what you're crying, but what is the difference in how you've told? It doesn't change the outcome that the person has died in this way, you know? So it, it's, it's, again, it's a different culture, a different reality than what we, um, what other people are used to dealing with. Um, I remember as a, one of the first things I really remember about death as a small child was my mom telling me um, about how somebody died when we were in St. Vincent. And in St. Vincent, we had the, in those days, we had the funerals in our homes. And I'm not exceptionally old, like I'm, I'm in my late 40s, you know, and even as a child, we still had funerals in our homes, funeral homes and all of that stuff I learned about here in Canada. But we took care of our own, you know, business with death and funerals. We cooked our own food. We organized our own things. And um, a funeral that we had when I was really small, um, the body was laid out in the living room and you had to keep the, the eyes closed of the, uh, of the corpse if you will, you had to keep their eyes closed. We didn't um, put them in formaldehyde or whatever you do with the body here. It was just the person died and you laid them out shortly in the living room. And I got to put the pennies on the person's eyes to keep them closed. And my mom said, you know, they lifted me up over the casket. I put the pennies down and they were so proud. I showed no fear, but it was seen to be a tremendous honor. I don't even know who this person is now. 
I have no idea who they are, but I carried that as a small child as such a source of pride that I was chosen to put the pennies on the eyes of this person who had passed away. And, and that had so much meaning for people in my family. Hmm. Yeah, like, um, okay, I wanna talk about a few things because I feel like we're covering a lot of ground. Okay. Um, and I'm really into it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's interesting to think about, yeah, how, how people how like our families were just so matter of fact about just death being a thing that is going to happen accepting of it and then also really blunt and like not very gentle about delivering that truth um i think part of it is like because if we if i were to contextualize like my family's history of like what they were like, like of migration and like the reality of like the political situation that they were coming from and like having to immigrate like death is like you're in a place where like you're in a proximity of death like that like you're not safe ever right all the time yeah and then I, I think about that a lot when it's like with immigrant families um and then I think about yeah um just how, how like I feel like it is like they're trying to prepare us for like accepting the reality of their death when the time comes yeah and they're not like I think that just like the language barrier of just like you know what I'm gonna die and they just um, that's just like a mic drop at a breakfast table <laughs> like, that's, that's just a thing uh that she will always be able to do <laughs> um to have over me um, but yeah, I think they're like what you were saying with like your family and like um, that memory that you have of being at a funeral and then you like having that moment. I feel like that um, in some way, you know, it create you, you're able to like, I guess, build your own internal narrative of like what of what death is to you, I guess, or, or of like, um, or yeah, form some ideas around it when you're a kid. Yeah, and then I think no, like- No fear, that's what, yeah. that's definitely what, yeah. like the whole concept of like death and ghosts and, and you know, I had some, and, and it's not like a universal Caribbean thought, right? Like it's, we're just, we all have different ways of, of seeing and doing, you know, I have some funerals I had gone to uh, when my kids were small and I would always take my own children to funerals. I've had people tell me, oh my gosh, you shouldn't take children to funerals because it's it's bad. You could traumatize them. You could scare them. They're too young to know about this kind of thing. And like, you're not going to say something like this to a woman who held so much pride about being able to put the the pennies on a dead person's eyes. That's completely out of line with what I've been raised to see. Um, I even went to a funeral one time when I was pregnant and one of the, the people at the door didn't want to let me in because she was like, there are spirits around that can, you know, impact on you and your unborn child. And I was like, get out of my way. You know, again, I'm not saying that she's she's wrong in her beliefs, because what do what do I know about what's happening in the in the ancestral realm? I don't know. But my thing is that everybody's position is different. I'm not going to impose my position on somebody. I come here to grieve and to celebrate 
a family member, a friend in my own way, you know, but you just see all of the the different ways that um, that everybody has their their own view of of death and and their practices that they feel are universal. And they're not they're not universal and there should not ever be any expectation that they are. Um, I think North American culture has imposed a universality of death onto us by law um, in this country. You know, like your your funeral has to be in a funeral home and you have to spend a million dollars on this funeral and you have to, you know, pay forty thousand dollars to buy a plot to bury your your relative is. And even if you cremate them, there are laws against what you can do with these ashes, where you can scatter them, what you can, you know, where you can keep them, who you can give them to. And all of this is serving a purpose that is outside of our own cultural practices and comfort. It's not serving us. A, a $40,000 plot is serving somebody's pocket. It's not helping me in terms of my grief and cultural process, you know? So there's, there are things that are seen to be universal, but I really think we should be asking some hard questions about how much control do we want to allow um, someone else to have over our lives and our families and their deaths. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an important question to ask. And like, I there's there's just like the way that it's kind of like the the funeral industry's been commercialized and how how death is commercialized and capitalized on is like something that's like I feel like it's really fucked up um, <laughs> and like I think about even just like you know indigenous peoples and like how they have their own practices around death and like how that's something that is like that cannot be practiced or I don't know I it's just it's really sad um but yeah I feel like yeah, and in like, <clears throat> sorry, in um, in like Western societies, like I feel like death is kind of invisibilized. I don't know if that's a word, but like I feel like well, I'll accept it. Yeah, you don't talk about it. You don't think about it. Um, and it's like everything is kind of like taken care of for you. Um, and then I think just like how you don't have to think about it until it's too late. Yeah, when it, you're in that moment. You, you know, when, yeah. when my mother died, I was not, I was not ready for all of the, of the preparation that had gone into, um, you know, like her talking about it all the time and whatever. I think I became so comfortable with the concept. I was comfortable with death as a concept, um, but I was not ready for death as a reality. My mother died suddenly. Um, she just went to sleep and didn't wake up. She was not old. She was not that old. She was not that sick. She wasn't sick or anything that we were looking out for. Um, I had just seen her the day before. She drove herself around. She was, you know, good. She was proper. She was fine. You know, she had a very robust, active life. And then she just went to sleep and didn't wake up just like that. Um, her friends were, were somewhat envious, if you can imagine, um, in a way that I guess Caribbean people would be. They said, her. one of her friends said that she had, my mother had the Cadillac of deaths. Like, if you have to go, that's how you want to go. You know, there's, you're not, no, <laughs> the Cadillac of deaths. No fuss, no muss. Like, she just went to sleep peacefully. You don't want a station wagon. Yeah. No, you don't want a hoopty. My mother did not have a hoopty of deaths. She did not have the Hyundai pony of deaths. She had the Cadillac of deaths. 
you know, and and I when I say I was not prepared, I mean I was not um because there was so much that you had to deal with in such a, a short time. And the, the biggest part of that was just even the the basic funeral was it was so at odds with everything that I was prepared for. And my family, like my extended family of aunts and uncles and cousins were a godsend. Like they just swept in and started doing what needs to be done. Um, our tradition involves something that's called nine nights where we get together for nine nights at the, typically at the home of the person that has died and people just start coming over. Like as soon as there's any announcement of death, everybody just starts coming over. They bring food, they bring drink. You are never alone. Your house is full of people. Nobody was prepared, but yet it's like as soon as it swings into action, it's like they've been preparing their whole lives for this moment whenever it happens. And I'd been to so many nine nights, but I'd never been on the on the organizing end of it. And here I wasn't even on the organizing end of it. It was just people started coming over and they would be singing the songs that needed to be sung and they would be talking well into the night and making all the plans that needed to be planned. So that part, the cultural part was going off without a hitch. Um, and, you know, the emotional part was gonna take some some healing and some sense of, of understanding. Um, but the part that was largely outside of my control was the, I felt outside of my control was the North American commercialized funeral part where I'm kind of like, who are you and why do I have to deal with you at this time of um, grief should be about me and my family, you know, but you have to go to the funeral home and talk about which one of their halls you want to, to rent how much it's going to cost. You know, I, sp I spoke ad nauseum in those, uh, that first year about the, the process of picking a coffin and how it was for a person that has any kind of sense of logic, it is the most illogical thing you could ever have to go through. I mean, the coffins have names and they're laid out in this ornate style. Like you're literally buying a car and it's like, would you like to have the, um, you know, this lovely velvet lined you know ship of whatever like it's made of the, the two coffins i remember the most were um cedar comfort cedar comfort or mahogany joy these are the two <laughs> top of the line you know they're they're lined they've got all these gold edgings what do you think your mother would like that kind of thing um my sister and I were together in the process. And I guess you could say that she and I are like, um, we balance each other out. She's exceptionally emotional. I'm exceptionally logical to the point where people probably think I have some kind of neurological issue. Like, I just want to, let's get through this, this process, you know? So um, also, when you think about the, I've heard about these seven stages of grieving that people are supposed to go to, and I'm sure one of them is anger. I basically just got stuck there. So by the time we went casket shopping, I was really in a, in a fit to be tied, you know, so this is not the day you want to talk to me about, do you think your mother would be comfortable or should we put a little pillow in here for, I was like, did anybody explain to you that my mother is dead? Like she's dead. What kind of nonsense are you trying to sell me here a, a dead body I should not be concerned about whether or not she's going to appreciate the gold piping in the interior of the lid like it's just such a it's such a racket that I feel they're using to just pull money out of people's pockets and make no mistake it's a lot of money um 
the kicker for me was this one thing they had that was kind of like a casket for the casket. Um, it's Wait, a, what? a casket? it's a casket for the casket. I cannot remember what it is called, but they had a um, a small replica of it in the um, in the funeral home so that they could show you this uh, this casket for the casket. So it's made out of solid marble and it has a lid, kind of like a big crypt, right? Like, and um, you could have it in either rose marble or gray marble or even white marble. Um, and I was confused. I was like, is this some kind of marble coffin? And she said, no, this is something that you put the coffin in to protect the coffin. Because once you've paid $6,500 for Mahogany Joy. You don't want anything to happen to Mahogany Joy. So you could pay like an additional $15,000 maybe to put Mahogany Joy and your deceased parent into this marble uh, crib. And then they will seal it and then they will engrave whatever you want on the cover before they bury this casket and casket and your loved one. So I asked, you know, because the engraving part was what was really throwing me for a loop. I said, so I don't understand what happens. Do we, will we ever see this thing again? Like, are we going to dig this up at some point in the future? And she said, no, no, no. It's just there to protect your loved one. She says, many people don't like the idea of the decomposition of the body. Like, I don't want to think, she's saying that openly. I don't want, because I don't want to think about my mother's body decomposing. I don't want to think about worms and the natural processes of life happening to the body of my mother. So not only am I going to buy the casket, I'm going to buy this thing to protect her from it. So then I never, I have to be secure that that is not happening. And then I'm going to engrave this bad boy and put it in the ground where I will never see it again. But I can have remarkable comfort in knowing that it is down there and my mother is safe from the natural elements. Do you see why this is crazy? Or I, sh- I shouldn't say crazy. Maybe, th- maybe there's somebody who's listening who actually did do this and did have this feeling. And I mean, I would hate to imply that somebody is crazy if they made this choice, but it seemed crazy to me from the perspective of someone who had always just seen death as a natural part of life. This was the antithesis of the natural part of life. Suffice to say, we didn't choose that. Yeah. It's a coffin within a coffin. The coffin within a coffin. <laughs> you protect that coffin, then, and then it's like, I don't want to think about. Oh. They should probably give an award to the people that have to work in funeral homes, though, because they had their, they had their hands busy with me that day. Like, I almost fed the woman the... Um, the little marble, uh, the little marble replica. I was ready to feed it to the woman. My sister had to hold me by the arms because I hate to be treated like I'm stupid or something like that. And to me, that just seemed inconceivable. Oh, you know, the other thing with the coffins is that the caskets is that, you know, they kind of use a, a psychological methodology on you when you go in there shopping. They put all the most expensive coffins that have all the best, features in coffins at eye level but if you want anything that is less expensive it's typically closer to the ground and it's not given any of the you know um it's not given any of the the kind of I don't want to say detailing I guess um 
you know, I'm thinking about when you sell a home or something like that, they have to set it up in a certain way to make it look really good or maybe like a store window, right? Like presentation or staging? Yes, staging, that's the word. So they stage the more expensive coffins, but they don't do that with the ones that are closer to the ground. So for example, if you want like a simple cedar box, not cedar box, I, I don't know if it's made of cedar. It's it's like just a wooden box. It's flat. It's shaped like a coffin. It has no handles, no details. It's just a flat box. If you want that, you can have it for about three thousand dollars. I think it was, but it's at the it's you know it could have been about two thousand dollars, but it's at the floor, like it's next to your ankle. So I started trying to mess with these people because they're like. Look at this lovely one here with the handles. It'll be so easy for the for the uh, the people that carry it. it and it, it slides so smoothly into the hearse. I'm like, let me see this box down here. They're like, oh, no, you don't want that. Look at this one we have over here. We've got this one with gold cherubs, little spray like gold angels that are on the side of the box. Four gold angels on the outsides of this casket. And you could even pop those off and give them as giveaways so that people can take home a part of the funeral for themselves. So like a wedding, I guess, they've got funeral bombineers for you to take home that were angels that were on the casket. I was like, could you show me this bad boy down here at the bottom, please? Cause I would like to see that. They're like, no, no, you wouldn't, you're, you wouldn't want that. You know, like this is your mother we're talking about here. Let's look at this wonderful cream colored rose gold, this, that, like they really, use your emotional um use your emotional currency try to get you to spend it with them like your love for your parent your love for your deceased parent is supposed to be directly reflected in how much money you are willing to give them forget that this woman has six grandchildren who one day will need to go to college and or university and need homes and survive in some way and built and the life that she built and the hopes that she had for them, it would be better for me to take $40,000 and give it to this spectacle that they're calling a funeral, which is so far removed from what we used to do in our homes, but it's become some kind of requirement. You know, we've all kind of bought into it. Yeah, I am. Yeah, no, it sounds so terrible that they, we're pushing to upsell you on coffins um like I yeah I I saw I did see an ad um and this could be a way that I go with it's, it's basic funerals uh, .ca. I think I saw it on the subway yeah basic um, funerals it's like three thousand dollars and I was like looking into it just to plan ahead but yeah it is like a pine box and they put you in it but um, I, I, I took um I took a writing class and it was like a horror writing class and then um we were talking about death and um we visited a um a cemetery and then we were we were talking about it and we were saying how like uh, I remember the person that was leading it was just saying how like you know all this all this stuff like all like the funerals and like the burials and like cemeteries it's like it's not for the dead people it's for us yes <laughs> it's like for us to be okay with it or like have some sense of peace or like um yeah I, and like they they don't care like they're they're dead <laughs> so like I guess you I guess the thing to do 
like I, I'm saying this maybe for me is like if I died just lavish the people that are living <laughs> and I'm a fine box or like a uh, or or like a mushroom suit it's the one where like you they put you in a suit oh, that's like by that would be just sounds then, gross right like that would almost make me want to get the confidence out of coffin if I have to think about mushrooms growing on my body like I don't look I mean it has to happen but I don't want to talk about it right now I don't okay. want to talk about it Either I would want something like really tasteless like a Dolly Parton coffin or like something, <laughs> something with like a bunch of, like just like fluorescent pink and like a Barbie mansion kind of thing or I've seen this also where people use your ashes and remains to turn like they somehow take like the mi minerals and then they use it for like beads and then you can um, <laughs> like use it to make a seed and like plant um, you can be a tree or oh people carry around like their loved ones ashes in jewelry also which is and that's funny thing. you know and so much emphasis on the body which I think too, just because so many people are largely Christian. You know, I spent my whole life growing up in church hearing, you know, that the body is just a shell and that the Lord is concerned with matters of the heart, you know, but I'm like, for, for, uh, we're putting a lot of emphasis on what happens with this shell. I mean, I told my kids because in the, in the very nature of what my mother was like, I also talked to my kids about death a lot, um, not in relation to their housework, because I feel like I have to make some kind of forward motion on that. Um, but I do talk about my funeral and what I want and stuff like that. And I've told them, you could do whatever you want with my body. You know, I mean, don't make me be like naked or something for people to look on my body because I want to be as buttoned up and prudish in, in my death as I was in life. But I'm not so concerned about the body, but I want to have the bangingest funeral in the history of funerals. And you can't just I tell your kids. You got to tell your friends too, because, you know, your family, they get emotional. And I feel like somebody's going to like twitch when I die and they're going to be like, oh yeah, no, we got to give her this traditional Anglican funeral or something like that. I'm like, I don't want that. I want a funeral with a DJ and I, you know, like I want it to be the jam. That's, that's all I want. I have songs picked out. I've got performances picked <laughs> out. I'm not saying it's going to be soon, but I don't care if I'm 90. I don't care if I'm 50. It's got to be the jam. That's all I ask. I don't think it's too who much. To your, ask. Who will be, what will, who's your funeral DJ? <laughs> and what, what jams do you have? Like I, I can, super picture it by the way like your 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 funeral jam like I can picture it like being a party and like just everybody drinks in hand but now I want to know like oh yeah be a DJ funeral, well funeral. I mean I, I mean I don't I don't like to name the name the DJs because you know I don't want them to feel like I don't know friends don't like you to suggest necessarily that you would go first or they would go first whatever and I don't want to jinx DJs by picking them and then having them go first and then I'm like oh great now I'm gonna have to settle for so and so right I don't I don't want any DJ to feel like they weren't my first choice um okay I, I just hope that they'll all fight over each other to uh to get there you know um but I, I can speak to the the choir that I used to sing with when uh, when I was at university. When I lived in Ottawa for several years, and I sang with a acapella choir called the Sifa Choir, 
And so when I got married, I, you know, got them to come and and sing at my at my wedding. And so I've already said, um, depending on how many members are left when I die, I want them to perform the Commodore's Night Shift at my uh, at my funeral, you know. Yeah, but then I have uh, I have my poet friend. Um, so like, say, uh, any of my poet friends, like uh, Eddie, the original one, for example, I've already told him he he's also my my funeral backup plan. Like if I go first, Eddie will know that what I've requested that my funeral is the jam. So I've asked him, you know, like, you got to tighten up the lyrics on the night shift song, because they're talking about like Marvin and, and Jackie, but you got to make it be a little bit about me, you know, so just, you know, write me into the song. Um, and just make it slap. That's that's what I want. It will probably be the most Wu Tang played at a funeral in in history. Like I just I'm leaving it to you guys. Like you know what I like. Make it happen. If even if it's an all New Jack Swing funeral, you could probably bring me back to life with that. So if you think <laughs> it will work, let's do it. But that that is what I want. And. This- I remember when my oldest son was really small because like I I start small. I don't believe in waiting to the last minute. So like maybe when he was three or four, I was already talking to him about my funeral plans. And he said, you know, mommy, he said, that doesn't make any sense. He says, what if we're sad? Won't we be crying? I'm like, you can cry after the funeral. You can cry before the funeral. You can cry at the funeral. You can even cry during the funeral. But whatever the case is, all crying has to be on the dance floor. I taught them how to do the electric slide because it has to be done at my uh, at my funeral. Like I have requirements. I got standards, and my standards don't include any expensive velvet lined, con- you know, coffin. Take that money and put it into, you know, good entertainment. Pay the DJ, buy out the bar, make it happen. That's my funeral. Is it, <laughs> I hope, no, I feel like people would look forward to it, but also at the same time would not. Um, I don't know. I, I think if you put that. VIP experience. Sorry, what? I think if you put that spin on it, then I'm not saying that the day anybody finds out I die, that they're going to be like, yes, you know, I've been waiting my whole life for this, but I feel like <laughs> it'll take the edge off the sadness a it little will. bit. Like you can miss me, but then also at the same time, you get to have the jam of all jams. Um, I'd like to say that it will be by invitation only, but I know the reality is just for the way that our our culture and our community rolls, it will probably not, um, it will probably not end up that way. I think when I got married, we, um, we invited 200 people to our wedding, we had over 300 people at the wedding. I think the other 100 people just came for the jam because they knew they like anything that she does is going to be the jam. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I got married 20 years ago and it was it was the jam. I think people are definitely looking forward to a round two, but weddings and funerals, that's what we do. Um, so it's like circle of life. If yeah, there's free food, life. you can bet people will crash. <laughs> like people will crash if there is, if there is food. There's like some- Yeah, but we're not a free food. Yeah, you know what? That's also a thing about, uh, I remember about my mom's funeral too, was the food. There was mm-hmm. so much food. Um, and similarly to how a, um, like how I said about nine nights and how everything was uh, kind of taken out of my hands. I don't even, there was so much food at the funeral. I don't even know where it came from. I don't know how it got there. 
I don't know who brought it. Like the actual funeral itself was, it, it's just amazing to be able to leave everything in the hands of your community. Not the funeral home, because we were like, the funeral home was like, oh yes, you know, we have a lovely selection of, what did they have? Like rolled luncheon meats and, and oh. I was like, are you kidding me? We're not doing that. Like the club sandwiches that you have no yeah. I went to a friend's a friend of mine uh his grandmother died uh, and I feel like I've been paying more since my mother died I've been paying more attention to other people's funeral and you know she was she was a white lady it's been a, it's been a long time since I've engaged with a um with a white family on that level that I would be expected to go to anybody's funeral um but I went to I went to this particular grandmother's funeral, and the difference between that funeral and my mother's funeral was like night and day. Mm-hmm. Um, like we we walked in the the room where the funeral was being held, and I was like, um, maybe this is the waiting room, right? Because funerals are so big in 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 my community. Like my mother's funeral had about seven hundred people. I've been told wow. um, this funeral had seating for about thirty. So I thought this is the place that we sat down before we got to the funeral. So my husband and I just sat in the back. And um, then when the the person came in, the priest or preacher or whatever came in and started talking, I was like, this is the funeral? I said, what, how is this the funeral? There's not even a piano in this room. How can you have a funeral in a room where there's no piano? Where's the live band? I mean, my family is all musicians. If there's not a live band playing, it's not a funeral. You know, they played recordings of the of the hymns. And um, I think I sat there with my mouth open the whole time. And then when we went to the repast uh, or the part of where you eat after the funeral, they served sandwiches, sandwiches on Wonder Bread with luncheon meat and onions, little wet onions on toothpicks. I'd never in the kitchen. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I think, you know, again, it's just different, but culturally for us, that would be like serving Wonder Bread sandwiches at the funeral. That would have been worse than picking a casket from the ground floor at the at the funeral home. Like the food is more and the 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 repast is more a reflection of how people felt about the person, I think, more so than what kind of casket you chose. Right. So it's just that's true where you where you choose to to see the to see the value for us i think the value is in the in the celebration and the remembrance it's not the value is not necessarily in the amount of money that you've chosen to spend with a completely unrelated entity um that's not even within your community but i mean the longer we stay here i do see those kinds of things are starting to starting to shift you know, that's why the, the conversations we have with our children are so important so that we can retain as much of our own cultural values when it comes to death as as possible. I feel like I'm going on and on about, uh, well, well, I'm like, we're going on and on about death. But yeah, I'm like, the show is about death. Um, yeah. I, I think going um, back to the, the cultural practices, I, thinking about the kids and my mother's funeral, um, one of the the other things that was mind blowing um, from that perspective was the the preparing of the the body for the um, for the funeral. Right now, remember I told you in in Saint Vincent we just handled our own thing. Like you died, you got yourselves together, and you you know I put the pennies on the eyes, and we just you know you kind of rolled with it. But here now in these modern times, 
there's a whole process. I mean, if you're coming from people have to bodies have to be put on ice so that relatives can come from far away and, and stuff like that. And I think that's changed for everybody now that we live in so many different places. Um, some cultures have been able to maintain the policy of having a funeral within 24 hours. But there's in those there's no expectation that you're going to come and see your loved one and look upon their body and say your last goodbyes, you know, so because of the expectations, there's there's a lot of different ways that we have to to do things now. So um, for my mom's funeral, you know, I was picking out the clothes. We were picking out the clothes that we want her to wear, the shoes, the this, the that and the everything. And the funeral home was like, yeah, well, you know, you can just drop off her clothes. And, you know, and I was like, what do you mean? I don't understand. Drop off her clothes. I mean, we both speak we're both speaking English, but it was the most awkward conversation. And the funeral home was like, um, we're going to just take her clothes and get her ready. I was like, what are you talking about? You're going to dress my mom. You're not going to dress my mom. That's something that we're supposed to do. We dress her like we go to where the body is and we put her clothes on and we fix her hair and we paint her nails and we put her shoes on and that's what we do. And they were like, no, no, no. We have rules. Um, there are laws. And I didn't understand how those laws could apply to the body of a woman that this woman does not belong to you, right? She belongs to me. So you shouldn't get to say, like, I just didn't want these strangers handling my mom in that in that way. And we have a whole, a whole, you know, things that you have to do to to get the to get the body ready. My mother's oldest uh, cousin, my auntie, my auntie Joan came with us to the funeral home. And you know, she had stuff in her purse that we needed to to use to prepare the body, things like that, you know, and a lot of this is taken out of our hands. So we were able to strongly negotiate for the right to be able to dress my mom. And I took my my children with me. I took my um, I have sons. Um, they didn't come for this part, but I took my niece, my sister's daughter, and I took my own daughter and I brought them into the room like, look, this is your grandmother. Like, this is important. Your grandmother is not just a body that you're afraid is going to come to life in the middle of the night and chase you. This is your grandmother. This is her body. And we are responsible for taking care of this body. And I expect you to do the same thing for me when my time comes. You know, my niece and, and my daughter, you know, they put her jewelry or whatever the, the things are that she's going to have on her hands. They, you know, painted her nails. They, you know, they, they did her hair. They got her all ready, you know. So it was important to me that they saw death as not something that we should be afraid of and that you have a relationship with this person until the end. But we wouldn't have had that if I hadn't had to fight for that. And I also had to pay for that. I had to pay extra for the right to be involved in preparing my mother for death, which is something that we just did on our own before, but we don't have that now. You see what I'm, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's, um, and it's a thing too, because it's like, it's part of like a very, like a cultural, um, or just like your family's practice of grieving and like of, of, of yeah, of like um, being able to process yeah. this person's passing. Part of the <laughs> and process. being able to like do all those things of like dress her and like 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 brush her hair, things like that. Yeah, um, it's like a saying goodbye, like, you know, it's a saying goodbye. Yeah. And sometimes people don't even get to have, I mean, my mother had the, the, the blessing to be able to die at home. So we had that time 
with her body. I mean, before the coroners came and took her away in an unmarked truck, we had that time, you know, but some people, their families will, their family member will die in the hospital and go directly to a drawer in the morgue. And they'll never, the next time they see them, they've just dropped the clothes off and they're there at the funeral. Like they have no individual personal time to really say goodbye. Before my mother died, I never thought about why that was important. But when her passing, I knew that it was important and it was something that I would want to advocate for, for other people. Like I've had friends whose family members have died and I've always said, do you want me to go with you to the funeral home? Because the last thing you want is to let these people get at you in your moment of grief and let them steamroll you through a bunch of stuff that you don't want, don't need and can't afford you know, just to be able to bring some some closure, closure to your situation, you know, like we need to be beside our people in their in their time of grief so that we can, we can help them because it is a lot of corporatization, it is a lot of, of, of capitalization happening to the, the process. And I don't think that we're a lot better as a result of it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, it's a way of pretending that like, you don't have, yeah, it's not, you're not going to die. It's going to be fine. Keep buying stuff. Keep going to work. Yeah, just keep um, going on. Yeah, just, yeah, don't worry about it. And then um, I think I was, uh, I was, I was talking to a mentor. She's a performance artist and we were talking about life and death. And one of the things that she was saying is like, like I was, I think like there's no real finality to after we die. There's like things that happen um, where it's like, um, we're just matter and then matter everywhere like it it doesn't it, it will continue to exist and like if you think about it like um like any of the matter that makes up our bodies physically will always be around and and also like other things in terms of storytelling and spirituality but I don't there's like we we're talking about how there's no finality to death um, and like she was saying how like there's no such thing as like you know life or death it's just like cycles of care um, yeah. and when you think about it like, newborns and how like they how how they treat the body of newborns and how they take care of them um, and the care that goes into it and it's similar to like when someone is on their way out or when someone is is, is passed um, I think it's interesting that was just something that I thought of when when I um, when you were talking about your kids and like how they were treating your mother's body. Yeah, it was, um, it was beautiful. It was, it was really beautiful to see, like they were very, they were very young. Um, you know, like I'm trying to think of how old the oldest one, uh, the oldest, my oldest nephew might've been maybe 15. Um, when my, uh, when my mom died and the, the young, the other ones were all younger, you know, but they were they were very involved you know they spoke at the funeral you know and and it was i think it's it's important to to have a part of that because it really does help you with the i think it helps you with the grieving process they had friends my uh, my kids had friends who also knew my mom because of all of the you know grandma picking them up from school coming to the school going to you know all of these school performances and whatnot and their friends were also very invested in her and her life. They came to the funeral, they played drums at the funeral, they danced, you know, in honor of my mother's death. Like it was really just a big thing, you know, not a, a cold, sterile kind of 
kind of thing, you know, and, and you're right. I, I feel like that, that energy, even though she's gone physically and that people leave us physically, the, the energy and the memories of who they are just continue. One day these kids will be adults themselves and have thought about their own deaths in relation to what they want and don't want based on what they've seen. You know, these little kids from the school playing drums and dancing at my mom's funeral will maybe one day hold a place of pride for them the way that putting pennies on the eyes of that person that I don't remember held for me. I don't remember the person, but I remember the honor that I felt in in being involved. And I think they should have the same sense of sense of involvement, sense of importance in in being chosen to represent somebody that they knew and loved in this way. Yeah, that's really, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah, I feel like it is like what I'm getting from this whole conversation and that what I'm hearing is like, a lot of it is about, you know, community and it creates that sense of like togetherness. Um, what that, yeah, that, that helps people, you know, continue to to just keep going um and it's the way of like and and celebration in like being able to celebrate that person's life rather than focusing on you know um just the the finality to it um yeah, yeah. you know the biggest thing um, i would say that um like just to kind of bring it full circle the biggest thing that i think that came out of my mother's death for me or not the biggest but something Something that came out of my mother's death for me is that that was actually my um, my reason for getting into comedy at all. (laughs) I wasn't doing it. I wasn't doing it before, even though people were always saying to me, you know, whenever you're a funny person or people perceive you to be funny, um, people are always saying you should get into comedy. And I feel like every funny person is not going to get into comedy because some people I think are just funny to their friends, right? Like, because your friends think you're funny does not mean you're going to get up in front of a crowd and be funny in front of people that don't know you and don't care. So I was not, I was not that interested. Um, But then when, uh, when my mom, uh, when my mom passed the day of the funeral, we had asked a a friend of hers that is a, uh, some kind of, you know, spiritual pastor leader person to speak at her funeral, to give the, to give the sermon at her funeral and the church, when you, when you have to book a church and you're not using their pastor, you have to show that the person who you've invited to give the funeral has credentials. So I had to ask my mother's credentialed friend to come and do the speech. Cause I thought that would be better than, you know, somebody who doesn't even know her talking about her. Then the morning of the funeral here, I was ironing my clothes. Um, and she called me and she said, you know what? I'm just not going to be able to make it. And I was like, what are you talking about? The funeral is in two hours. You're not going to tell me that you're not going to be able to make it. She's like, yeah, I'm not going to be there. Sorry about that. Good luck. And so um, being again, because we're used to hands on in our, in our situations, I had already gone through all the trouble of inserting myself and inserting our family into the process of, of uh, dressing and preparing my mother. Now, I'm certainly not going to ask a stranger two hours before the event to talk about my mom. So I just decided that I'm going to do it. Now, of course, I have no um, spiritual credentials. I have not paid any accredited university to give me the right to 
have a hand in my spirituality. Too bad, so sad. But I certainly wasn't going to tell him that. I wasn't going to tell the people at the church that. So in the um, in the limousine that I did not want but did come as part of the funeral package, uh, on our way to the funeral, I wrote the a sermon based on what I wanted to talk about um, with my mom. Uh, so I, I, I wrote it. I had a friend that helped me look up the Bible verses that I was looking for that I felt would best represent what I wanted to say about my mom. And when I got there, the pastor asked me, um, is the is the person here? Is the, the preacher woman or whoever she is, is she here? I said, oh, she's definitely here. I said, so you can just call her up uh, when you're when you're ready. And I went and sat in the front row with the rest of the people. And when when we'd gone through all of the, you know, reading of verses and all this stuff. And when he called her up, I went. <laughs> and but it was too late uh, for him to do anything. So <laughs> So I delivered the I delivered the sermon. I don't remember at all yeah. what uh, what I said, and 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 I guess that also is a function of the the level of grief that that I was in. That I remember nothing at all about this sermon, except that I did it, and my sister was with me the whole time. There is a recording, and I said that one day when I feel up to it, I'm going to watch it. Um, it's been going on six years now. I have never watched it. Um, but my sister says she watches it. She watches it fairly often. So you see, we're kind of polar opposites in that way. But after the funeral, many people kept coming up to me and saying, wow, that was subservient. You really should get into comedy. That's, that's real. You were really funny. You know, like that was amazing. I didn't know that, uh, that a sermon at a funeral could be so funny. I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'm going to have to find out one day what that's all about. Then, so based on that, at um, the next time a friend of mine was organized, I have a friend who um, organizes comedy, um, a gentleman called Marquise. He was doing a, a show and he asked me to come and be in the show. He was like, you know, just do what you did at the, do what you did at the funeral. Like, just come and you don't have to write anything. You just have to talk. Like, just take it from the hip and just talk. So... I went to the show, which um, ironically was on my mother's birthday. It was the first birthday after she she died, her first ancestral birthday, you could say. Okay. And I was like, I'm I'm a mess. I've been a mess this whole week. I'm tore up. I'm not ready. I'm emotionally, I'm all over the place. But I told him I would come, so I went. And um, when it was my turn to speak, I was like, I'm just going to get up there and talk about my mother because it's her birthday and I'm filled with so much grief and and I'm also filled with so much anger because if you think right now I can talk pretty reasonably about my experiences with the funeral, but back then it was still pretty close to the surface, you know? So I went up there and I just was like, Hey, you know what? This is me. Like I'm NOJ and you know, my mother died and it's her birthday today. And let me tell you about these coffins. Let me tell you about these people who, you know, you try to buy a burial plot and they're like, hey, there's a lovely spot between two, you know, two hills where they literally asked me if I thought my mother would enjoy the view. Like these people are crazy. I told them every crazy thing that I had I had noticed since my mother died. These people were on the floor. And I was thinking at the same time as I was explaining all of this stuff that 
you people yourselves are kind of crazy because I don't even see what is funny about this, but you people are laughing. I'm pouring my heart out to you with all of my rage and grief. And they loved it. They ate it. They like, I killed it. And afterwards I thought, you know, I felt really good. You know, like I felt really good being able to get that out. It's like its own form of therapy. And plus I thought if, if comedy is just talking to people about what's going on in your life, well, I can do that. I've got a lot to talk about, you know? So, so that was how it went. So even now when people say like, how did you get started in comedy? I'm like, well, I guess you could say my, my first time doing standup was at my mother's funeral. How many people can say that? Uh, and it's so yeah Nicole's really funny, really funny. <laughs> um, yeah I guess you you oh my god you killed that set yeah um, yeah and I think so one of my favorite quotes uh, by one of my favorite comedians Chris mine Rock, too uh, yeah yeah favorite ever um his he has a quote and it's about comedy and I think he said something like um Comedy is the blues for people who can't sing. <laughs> so, oh, that comedians are we are sad people, uh, but we just we try to find uh, the joy in things that are really, really yeah, happy. yeah, like the um, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um. Before you go, though, I did want to, I did want to ask a question. Okay. Um. One last Shoot. question. If you can, so in one sentence, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> what is your definition of the meaning of life? Oh, no, you um, suck. I don't even think you, I, you think you're going to come <laughs> sideways at me with a question like that. What is the meaning of life? Listen, Who do I look like? In hotel? Come on now. Time is ticking here, lady. Let's, <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you like a few breaths to think about it. But um, just for our listeners to have something to think about. Um, okay, I guess I would say that the meaning of life is, by your own definition, living well until you die. That's it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I don't have anything more profound to to give, but I think that's that's essentially all you can that's all you can do if you can just continue breathing. And, but not just not just being alive, but living well by whatever that means to you. And then one day you'll die and and have that jam. And have great jams with um with a funeral. Oh yeah. DJ and open, open and bar. an open bar. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. May your funeral DJ slam and may your open bar be the jam. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. That was the first episode of Afterlife. Um, and thank you to NOJ. It was an honor to have you uh, share and to, uh, to deliver some beautiful pieces of wisdom. Thank, thank you. you. So um, thank you. <laughs>